end. But Daniel chapter 5, and we'll read the first four verses of Scripture, and then we'll get into our first couple of points, and we'll see how far we get tonight. In verse number 1, it says, Belshazzar the king made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. Belshazzar, whilst, whilst he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the golden and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, that the king and his princes, his wives, and his concubines might drink therein, that they brought the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple of the house of God, which was at Jerusalem, and the king and his princes, his wives, and his concubines drank in them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold, of silver, of brass, of iron, of wood, and of stone. Let's pray. Father, I just ask you that you would just guide me in this message tonight. And I pray, Lord, it would be a help to everybody here to learn more about Daniel, learn more about your heart, and Lord, build our faith knowing that you uh, wrote these things so many, many years ago. And Lord, it's all come to pass. And we're so grateful that we've got a sovereign uh, and holy and righteous and perfect God. Thank you, Lord, for this evening. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. And so this particular chapter, uh, remember I was looking at, when we looked at the dreams in Daniel chapter 2, we were looking at basically the, the uh, structure of the empires. And that was the, the head of gold, the breast, of, uh, breast and arms of silver, uh, the belly of brass and so forth, the legs of iron. And that's just really talking about the structure uh, starting at the beginning till the final empire Till when Jesus Christ comes again and smashes down all the world empires in one mighty blow. Amen. Uh, but now in the last three chapters, we've been looking more at the character of these empires. And this, this to, uh, tonight uh, really is going to help us understand a little more about the character of, of the world empires that we, that we have around us today. Uh, it's not friendly to the Lord. Amen. This world is not, does not love Jesus. All right. And uh, we can tell that very easily by just turning on the news and uh, what they're saying and how they handle things. They've turned against the scripture, turned against the Lord. And that is just very um, telling as far as where our empire really is right now and how the world is operating. So in keeping with our theme, we're seeing the character of these empires of the world revealed through this wicked life of this King Belshazzar. Uh, You may say Belshazzar, I don't know how you want to say it, I just say Belshazzar, all right? Uh, The character of the empires has always been to be against God of the Bible, uh, seeking to mock God while chasing after their own lusts and and making gods of their own making, (laughs) after their own desires. That's always been from the beginning, they would make gods that would fill a desire that they had. And so they would fabricate gods to give them what they thought they wanted. And that's how they would worship them. As long as you give me what I want, I'll worship you. And so it wasn't real. And so they made gods of wood and of stone. And we even have that mentioned here. Gods uh, of gold and of silver and of brass and iron of wood and of stone. Uh, One thing we learn in this particular chapter is a wicked life will always uh, be reaped. That means if you sow to sin, you sow to the flesh you will reap that, that corruption as well. And the Bible says in Galatians 6, verse 7, it says, Be not deceived, 
God is not mocked, for whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. And that, I think, is for the lost, uh, for sure. Uh, maybe they'll have more time in between because the Lord deals first with his church, amen? The judgment must first begin at the house of God. I think that we probably know this principle better than the world does. We understand it in our personal lives because God won't let us get away with sin. We're his children, amen? And because of that, he will correct us. And if he's not correcting us, well, then we're not his children. That's just as simple as that. Um, and so in Romans chapter 3, verse 18, I thought about this verse. It talks about us and our nature and our base nature. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And I see that very much with this wicked king that we're going to look at tonight. Uh, we also see in this chapter that there's a transitioning from the kingdom of the head of gold, Babylon, to the breast and arms of silver, that's Babylon to the Mede and Persian Empire. So this chapter actually incorporates that transition. By the end of this chapter, Babylon's done. And then we're moving to another, uh, another section of our book. And so it's important to know that. Um, God used the writing on the wall to relay his message to Belshazzar. Unlike Nebuchadnezzar, what did he do with Nebuchadnezzar? Dreams, right? Uh, he spoke uh, actually a couple of times directly to the heart of Nebuchadnezzar. He gave him the dream, which really in scripture, uh, you know, you see that a couple of times Pharaoh had some dreams and so forth. Uh, God works to these kings of these empires because he's trying to get his message across to these leaders. And that happened in Nebuchadnezzar. But it's interesting with Belshazzar, he didn't, he didn't get close to his heart like that. He didn't, he didn't speak to him like that. He had to come externally and write his message on the wall. I don't know if that's because he was just so outright wicked and the God, God just says, you stink, I don't want to come near you. Uh, I don't know why he did it this way, but we do know that God used the writing of the, of the wall. Um, we've heard the phrase before, all of us I'm sure, and in fact you probably never met somebody that didn't know the phrase, I see the writing on the wall. You know, it's become so entrenched in our world that even the lost, even the atheist, even those that don't even believe in God will use this all the time, not realizing the source of it goes back to God himself uh, and nailing you down saying, guess what? Uh, this is coming whether you like it or not. Amen. And so the, that phrase, it's a, it's a statement to reflect the surety of something ominous coming that is going to take place and that you can have a taste of before it actually comes. It's like when we look at something, boy, I see the writing on the wall there. That means I see the behavior and you know what? I can see what's going to happen. And that's when that phrase will come out, I see the writing on the wall. Amen. And that's exactly what happened here. Belshazzar thought he was uh, on top. He thought that he had it all together. Nobody's going to take me down. But you know what? He didn't give glory to God. Uh, God took him down. <laughs> Amen. And so it's such an important thing. So that, that's the, the, how it equates between the writing on the wall and Belshazzar. And to this day, people use that over and over and over again. You'll be on the news and you'll hear an anchor say, oh, I see the writing on the wall. Uh, you'll watch a movie. You'll say, I'll talk about the writing on the wall. And that goes right back to Daniel chapter 5. Amen. And so that's quite interesting when you look at the phrases of scripture 
uh, many of them, actually, even in the King James Bible, uh, words that didn't even exist before the translation of this book. That, that's interesting. There's certain phrases that didn't exist until the King James Bible was written. Even the word Passover, you know, that didn't exist until the translation of Scripture. But yet that word is used over and over and over and over again, you know. And so anyways, um, so this message, you could also entitle it, you know, when God crashes your party. I've heard a message by that one. You know, a man preached that one time in relation to this chapter because you can have your party, but sooner or later, you can be sure, according to the principle, that God is not mocked for a man sows what he reaps, or he reaps what he sows, uh, he will crash your party. And it's going to change the whole attitude of your party. Amen. And so that's important. So we feel that we see a proud king that doesn't feel accountable for his lifestyle at all to anybody. I can do what I want. I got my own brain. I got my own life. And God just says, let me share something with you. He says, I'm watching you. <laughs> and his final message, wow, you've been found wanting. He knew exactly where he was at. And you know what? I think with us too, we've got to be careful. You know, sure, we're saved. And many, many times you just rest upon the fact, well, I'm saved. But I understand something. We could have a very good life down here if we do things right. If we want to play with God and we want to do our own thing and live after our flesh and challenge the Lord's principles and, and be in the face of God with our pride, uh, you are going to mess up this little chance you have to live by faith and to be rewarded based upon your faith and love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Don't, don't blow it. Don't blow it because you can blow it. One decision will blow it. One wrong decision can blow it. Amen? Don't let it happen. <laughs> Stay on guard. Stay right with the Lord. So first thing I want to talk about here is, number one, the frailty of the throne. The frailty, and this little introductory stuff is not really in the text, but I thought I would give you a little bit of uh, background here, because from the last chapter to this chapter, we have had several years pass. In fact, Daniel is now in his 80s in this chapter. So when he comes into play here, you're going to see it. He's almost forgotten already. And yet he's brought out of the dust to deal with this situation with Belshazzar. And so we're going to look at the kings. Uh, number one, Nebuchadnezzar died in 1561 BC after 44 years of reigning as king of Babylon. And so we know that the Lord spoke to his heart. He got saved. He gave glory to God. And I believe that, uh, that he lived his life that way from that point on. Number two... Nebuchadnezzar's son, Evil Meredith, reigned for two years until he was assassinated in a revolt led by his brother-in-law in 559 B.C. And so, yeah, it's always in the family, amen? <laughs> and so this is the interesting thing about Evil Meredith, because, you know, Nebuchadnezzar, of course, he had already had uh, a soft spot in his heart for the Jewish people. He, he loved them. He loved Daniel and uh, he was in no position now to abuse them anymore. He knew that the God of Israel was the God of heaven. Uh, God showed him that. And so he was good to him. And I think he taught that to his son because his son treated the Jews with kindness for those two years. I don't know why it is the Lord saw to take him out after two years. But I don't think it was because he was living wickedly. I think it was just simply because 
uh, of what the whole the system of the throne, the frailty of the throne at this point in time in history. In 2 Kings chapter 25, it says this, And it came to pass in the 730th year of the captivity of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 7 and 20th day of the month, that evil Meredith, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, did lift up the head of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, out of the prison. And he spake kindly to him and set his throne above the thrones of the kings that were with him in Babylon. Now this may have stirred up some trouble with some of the hardcore uh, Chaldeans. And he changed his prison garments and he did eat bread continually before him all the days of his life. And his allowance was a continual allowance given him of the king, a daily rate for every day, all the days of his life. And so here you have why I think all I can think of is because of his dad. How Nebuchadnezzar taught him about the God of Israel. And when he saw this king, now Jehoiakim, when he was put into prison at the beginning of the siege, he was a young king. I think he was in his early 20s. And he just kind of gave up and they took him and they put him into prison. And he's been in prison until this king took over. And he saw him there and he picked him up and he made him, uh, gave him great power within the Babylonian kingdom. And I think it's simply because of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, number three, um, Nabonidus, son-in-law to Nebuchadnezzar, the father of Belshazzar, usurped the throne in 555 BC. So in between those two kings, there was a lot of turmoil. There was a lot of assassinations, uh, people losing the throne, people gaining the throne. And finally, this guy comes in and he usurps the throne and takes it to himself in 555 BC. And um, this is why when, when it's talking about Belshazzar in this chapter, twice it mentions him in relation to Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar is his father. But we know that term doesn't mean necessarily that's his dad, but it's talking about that he's in relation to Nebuchadnezzar, because there's a connection between Belshazzar's dad and Nebuchadnezzar being related. All right, And so that's why twice you'll have the servants mentioned once, Nebuchadnezzar thy father. And then Daniel, when Daniel shared the, uh, the, the testimony of Nebuchadnezzar, he also called Nebuchadnezzar Belshazzar's father, re- referring back to his position in relation to Nebuchadnezzar as well. And you see that in Daniel 5 verse 18. O thou king, the most high God, gave Nebuchadnezzar thy father a kingdom and majesty and glory and honor. Now, Nabonidus was in Temis, Arabia, to build a commercial empire while leaving his son, Belshazzar, as vice regent over Babylon. So basically, the king, Belshazzar's dad, wasn't in Babylon. He took off to Arabia. And left his son in charge in Babylon. Now this guy, he, to me, just looks like a spoiled brat. <laughs> and people say he, one thing he did know was soldiering. He was a fighter. But he sure was no politician. And he sure wasn't very wise. Uh, and we'll see in a little bit why that is. And so here Belshazzar was actually vice regent. So uh, Nabonidus was ruler number one. Belshazzar was ruler number two. And we'll see later on in the chapter when he starts giving out rewards for interpreting this writing, 
He says, I'll make you what? Third ruler in the kingdom. <laughs> That's because he's the second. That's because his dad is the first. Amen. So all he could give him is third. He doesn't want to give him second because then he'd have to stand out of the way. And I wonder whether he could really have given that third rulership because usually that is up to the first ruler to give out the positions of ruling. Amen. But I mean, he was desperate, right? So letter B, the siege. Number one, Jeremiah prophesied of the Medes and Persians besieging Babylon. Hopefully I got the besieging to Babylon. Not quite right English. I, had, I did this all in two days, so give me a break. Amen. <laughs> all right. And so Daniel understood that 70 years of captivity would end with Babylon being overthrown by the Medes and Persians. And he knew that because he was reading the book of Jeremiah. The book of Jeremiah was, was written before, the, the, uh, before uh, the Israel was taken into captivity to Babylon. And Jeremiah was the prophet that was in Israel while Nebuchadnezzar came to destroy it. He wrote about that. He warned them about that. He said 70 years of captivity, and now we're getting to the end of that 70-year period. And that's where we find ourselves in chapter 5. And so it says here in uh, chapter chapter 25, verse 8 of Jeremiah, Therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, because ye have not heard my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, saith the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and against the inhabitants thereof and against all these nations round about and will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment and a hissing and a perpetual desolations. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, the son of the millstones, and the light of the candle. And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. 70 years, right there. So Daniel, later on in his ministry here, is reading the the writings of Jeremiah, and it dawns on him that 70 years was the amount of time that they were supposed to be in captivity to Babylon. So Daniel, at this point, knows he's at the end. He's at the end of this reign. He's at the end of this captivity. So this is, this is what Daniel knows. I don't know if anybody else knows it, but Daniel knows it. Obviously, uh, Belshazzar didn't get the hint. Amen? And so, and it shall come to pass, when 70 years are accomplished, that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, saith the Lord, for their iniquity and the land of the Chaldeans, and will make it perpetual desolations. And I will bring upon that land all my words, which I have pronounced against it, even all that is written in this book, which Jeremiah hath prophesied against all nations. So, Jeremiah gave some very detailed prophecy about what was happening here at the end of this 70 years. Uh, The first one is Babylon would be attacked from the north. We already read that. The second one, that the city would be well provisioned. This is the thing. Babylon was a great fortress. Why were they having a party while they're being besieged by the Mede and Persian army? <laughs> you know, they got an army surrounding their kingdom. Meanwhile, this king is having a party and getting drunk with a thousand of his lords. 
they were so convinced that there was no way that they were going to get overrun. That's how great Babylon was. <laughs> they just figured there's no way they'd ever get over these walls. No way they're ever going to get in here. So they just threw a party. That's what they did. Foolish, foolish, foolish. Um, the city would trust its enormous walls and towers and high gates for protection. And Jeremiah prophesied that. He says, though Babylon should mount up to heaven, and though she should fortify the height of her strength, yet from me shall spoilers come unto her, saith the Lord. Amen. Uh, 51 verse 58, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the broad walls of Babylon shall be utterly broken, and her high gates shall be burned with fire, and the people shall labor in vain, and the folk in the fire, and they shall be weary. Not only that, he also predicted that the city would be taken by a clever strategy. You see that in chapter 50 verse 24 of Jeremiah, I have laid a snare before thee, and thou art also taken, O Babylon, and thou wast not aware, thou art found and also caught, because thou hast striven against the Lord. Now, Ben, do I have those graphics connected there to these points at all? So there you have the, um, the Babylon. You can see the, the thickness of the walls. Those walls, you could run two chariots with full horses side by side down the walls of that city on the top. So that's why they're looking at, hey, who's going to break through this? Who's going to take our city? And I'll bring up the next one, the graphic there. There's the gates, the gates of Ishtar. And so they, they put a lot of stock in their, their, their powerful gates. It says nobody's going to get through that. I mean, they would put soldiers up on the walls there. There'd be a processional place where people would walk, and that's how they'd come in. And by the time they get to the gates, they'd be just pummeled with arrows. They just saw there's no way somebody's getting into that gate, you know. And then is there another one there, Ben? This one here. Notice the waterway, the Euphrates River. So the, the, the city of Babylon was located on the Euphrates River, and a part of the Euphrates River actually flowed through the city itself. That would be their water source. I mean, I tell you, in those days when you had a city that had its own water source, you could, lay, you could be in siege for years and years and years and you would have no problem surviving. Uh, Jerusalem did that. Uh, you ever heard of a Hezekiah's tunnel? What he did is he hewed through solid rock to, the, to a spring called Gion that fed that, uh, that pool of Siloam. And that's why that pool, it would, it, would get, it would get filled from this underground spring. And so even though there'd be an army camped around the city, they'd get fresh water dumped in through the pool all the time, <laughs> you know, because water is life, amen. No water, if they can cut off your water supply, you're done. You might as well just give up because you're not going to survive. And so water is very important. And so when the Lord says here, I've laid a snare for thee, he knows the brilliant mind of the Persian army, Darius and the Medes and the Persian army, Cyrus, what they did is they redirected the river and they, they cut a different channel and the, the water started running in a different way which dried out the river that went underneath the walls. So what they did, while these guys were partying, they dropped the water level and they actually walked on the riverbed right into the city. <laughs> they thought there's no way they're going to put an army through that river. 
Well, they didn't think that all they'd have to do is redirect the river. You know, the Lord says, I laid a snare for you. And sure enough, they walked in there while these guys were partying and they didn't even have to fire a bullet. And Babylon fell while they're all drunk. (laughs) You know, foolish, foolish. So it would take a clever strategy. The successful strategy would be linked to the water supply. It says in Jeremiah 51 verse 36, Therefore thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will plead thy cause and take vengeance for thee, and I will dry up her sea and make her springs dry. Amen. Uh, Also, the scheme would be connected to the Euphrates River. And letter G, the drunkenness of the people would lead to their slaughter. In Jeremiah 51, verse 57, we're talking uh, 70 years before this was written. It says, and I will make her drunk. I'll make drunk her princes and her wise men, her captains and her rulers and her mighty men. And they shall sleep a perpetual sleep and not wake, saith the king, whose name is the Lord of hosts. Amen. My goodness, man, that was a bad night to have a party. But they did it, and the Lord answered with his judgment. Number two, in October of uh, 539 B.C., the Mede-Persian army peacefully took Babylon while Belshazzar and his lords were drunk. And we see that in in verse number 30 of the same chapter. In that night was Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, slain. And so that was it. Just a drunken king. Uh, Number two. Let's look at the feast and the vessels. This is interesting. Uh, We already looked at this, how they took the vessels and they drank. Uh, Well, let's read it again. Uh, Verse number one. Belshazzar the king made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. So they were just sitting around drinking wine like they always do. But then he gets his big idea. He just kind of throws it out there. Belshazzar, while he tastes the wine, commanded to bring in the golden and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem, that the king and his princes, his wives and his concubines might drink therein. Then they brought the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem, and the king and his princes, his wives and his concubines drank in them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold, and of silver, of brass, of iron, of wood, and of stone. Letter A, Belshazzar, in his overconfidence, invited a thousand of his lords to a feast while Babylon was under siege. Letter B, Belshazzar drank wine with his lords. So they're getting drunk. Context of this wine isn't grape juice. Amen. This is alcoholic. This is fermented. This was meant to get them drunk. Letter C, Belshazzar commanded that the vessels of the Lord be brought to the feast to be used to drink wine. Uh, Number one, Jeremiah prophesied the vessels of the temple would be taken to Babylon and returned to Israel. And you see that there in Jeremiah 27, verse 21. Yea, thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning the vessels that remain in the house of the Lord and in the house of the king of Judah and of Jerusalem. They shall be carried to Babylon, and there shall they be until the day that I visit them, saith the Lord. Then will I bring them up and restore them to this place. Amen. Prophesied decades before. Here he is having the party on the night that Babylon falls. And what does he call for? The vessels 
of the house of God. My goodness. Number two, Cyrus, the king of Persia, sent the vessels back to Israel with Ezra. So in the book of Ezra, what you have is written is where Ezra goes back to restore the temple worship back in Jerusalem. Uh, they've already, uh, Zerubbabel took a group of people already to, to uh, Jerusalem uh, by the decree of Cyrus. But then Ezra goes back a little while later and he sends all the vessels of the house of God because Ezra is going as a priest and as a scribe to reinstitute the priesthood, the worship, the sacrifices, and that's what he's doing in that return, that second stage of that return. The third one would be Nehemiah a little bit later when he goes back to repair the walls and the gates of the city. So there's three stages of return, all right? And so in Ezra 1 verse 7, it says, Also Cyrus the king brought forth the vessels of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had brought forth out of Jerusalem and had put them in the house of his gods, even those did Cyrus, king of Persia, bring forth by the hand of Mithridath, the treasurer, and numbered them unto Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this is the number of them, 30 chargers of gold, a thousand chargers of silver, nine and 20 knives. So a thousand lords, he had over a thousand vessels to drink out of. And he called for them all on the night of the party. And so all of them began to drink out of the vessels of God. <laughs> Isn't that something? Now, if God wasn't real, it wouldn't be a big deal. But if God is real, this guy really messed up. Amen? Now, number three, the vessels were made according to God's design with brass at the beginning with the, with the tabernacle. Now, later on, when Solomon began making the vessels, he'd make them of gold, of silver, and different metals. But at the beginning, most of the vessels that were used in tabernacle were of brass. And brass pictured judgment. Amen. And so in Exodus 25, verse 39, it says, Of a talent of pure gold shall he make it with all these vessels, and look at thou, look, I'll get my tongue going yet, and look that thou make them after their pattern, which was showed thee in the mount. And so you can see that God, he also calls the vessels here all the different furniture of the, of the tabernacle, from the lampstand to the table of showbread to the altar of incense and all of these gold things as well. Uh, in Exodus 27, verse 3, it says, And thou shalt make his pans to receive his ashes and his shovels and his basins and his flesh hooks and his fire pans. All the vessels thereof thou shalt make of brass. 1 Kings 7, 45, And the pots and the shovels and the basins and all these vessels which Hiram made to King Solomon for the house of the Lord were of bright brass. Amen. So very important to understand that judgment, uh, brass is always a picture of judgment and chastisement, all right? And we know that in the temple it had a lot to do with the judgment upon the Lord Jesus Christ for our sins. And so the vessels were used in relation to the cross of Calvary, in relation to the death of the Lamb. And that's so important to understand when we're talking about serving God. Uh, when they went and lit up the altar of incense inside the tabernacle, they didn't just get their big lighter out of their pocket. They took fire from the brazen altar that was outside, which pictured the judgment upon the Lord Jesus Christ. They took that fire 
and they lit the altar of incense inside of that uh, tabernacle and they'd light that incense and that became a sweet-smelling savor in the nostrils of God. And that's a picture of the prayers, but also the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when uh, Nadab and Abihu took strange fire and they lit up that incense altar, God smote them dead immediately. He says, you don't put other fire on that. In other words, if your life is going to please God, it has to be lit on fire by the cross of Calvary. No other fire. And so you can't just go to God based upon what your motivation is. Amen. You've got to, you've got to pattern your life after the cross. The humility, the death, the submission, uh, all these things, that has to go into your service for God. Anything other than that is simply an abomination to God. Amen. So that has to be behind it. Anyways, letter D, Belshazzar defiled the vessels by drinking to false gods. Now he thinks he's cool. He thinks he's got all under control. He's, Mr. he's the guy. He's the man. Uh, I've got the power. Nobody can take me down. Well, he was a fool. He was a big fool. The vessels were not to be used in conjunction with false worship. That goes without saying. But number one, the vessels were sanctified for the Lord's service. You see that in Leviticus chapter 8, uh, verse 10, it says, And Moses took the anointing oil, anointed the tabernacle, and all that was therein, and sanctified them. And he sprinkled thereof upon the altar seven times, and anointed the altar, and all his vessels, both the laver and his foot, to sanctify them. Sanctify them means set apart. These vessels were set apart to God. They weren't to be used for false gods. They were only to be used for the Lord. Amen? In 1 Samuel 21, verse 5, and David answered the priest and said unto him, Of a truth, women have been kept from us about these three days since I came out. And the vessels of the young men are holy, and the bread is in manner common, yea, though it were sanctified this day in the vessel. In 1 Kings 8, verse 4, And they brought up the ark of the Lord, and the tabernacle of the congregation, and all the holy vessels that were in the tabernacle, even those did the priests and the Levites bring up. They were holy. They were set apart. They were for God's use. Now that brings me to this point, number two. Believers are God's vessels sanctified for the Lord's use. You are. In the same way that those vessels of gold, silver, and brass were sanctified to the Lord's service in the temple is the same way that we are vessels unto our God. And we cannot use them for worship to false gods. That's why the Apostle Paul or Apostle John, my little children, keep thyself from idols. <laughs> Amen. Uh, 2 Timothy 2 verse 20. This has always been a uh, uh, incredible verse to me, or a couple of verses. It says, But in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth, some to honor and some to dishonor. What he's talking about is the house of God. What he's talking about is this church right here. <laughs> now, this is not popular teaching, <laughs> this isn't popular uh, doctrine. 
for us today because we all want to say, oh, yes, we're all sanctified and ready for... But the Bible says every great house has a bunch of different vessels. And some of them are vessels of gold and of silver, but some are simply of wood and of the earth. Some to honor and some to dishonor. Then it goes on to say, if a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use and prepared unto every good work. Folks, I'm going to tell you something about being a Christian today that wants to serve God. It is not the message of tolerance. Do you understand that? If you want to take the message that's going on in the news today and apply it to the local assembly, you are way off base. You see, when the Bible says if you're a vessel of dishonor and you're a vessel of wood in the earth, the Bible tells those that want to be vessels of silver and gold to purge themselves from you. Remove themselves from your fellowship so that they can, why? So they can be sanctified, set apart, meet. That means prepared for the master's use and prepared unto every good work. Amen. But we live in a day and age where we're just saying, oh no, we just need to love everybody. And folks, the problem is this, it's destroying the church. (laughs) And we don't have anybody that's ready to be used by God. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) Throughout the history that I've known since I've been uh, saved, prepared for ministry, I'll tell you who it was that was successful going out and doing the will of God. Those that would purge themselves from vessels of dishonor. That is an unpopular message. It really is. Folks, what we cannot do is fellowship with the works of darkness. Fellowship with those living for the flesh. And think for one second that God's going to use you. In the same way that Belshazzar took those vessels and used them and drank wine in them unto his gods. That's what we do. And I know that makes it a very narrow message. That makes for a very narrow church. And you know what? It brings a lot of uh, um, judgment upon those that want to do the right thing. There's been times I've had to cut family out of my life because they didn't want to do right. They wanted to live in all kinds of ways that I could not condone. And I had to pull away from that. You know what? When I did that, the Lord opened up doors for me to go serve him in greater ways. If I wouldn't have, I wouldn't be your pastor today. I'll tell you that right now. Do you understand that? We need to start living by principle. And this is one of them. The Bible says... 1 Corinthians 3.16 Know ye not that ye are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. Don't defile the temple of God. Ye is plural. He's referring to the local assembly. He's woe to the man that comes in and tries to defile the house of God. Then it goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. 
Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Gnostic teaching in the first century, what they would begin to say is, because your body is evil, it doesn't matter. So you can live evil in your body as long as you're, that's where we get the mentality today, well, the Lord knows my heart. (laughs) Amen. The Lord knows my heart. The Gnostics, they would live the way they wanted to in the flesh, but they would just glorify God in their spirit. But the Bible tells us here, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. He's answering Gnosticism. He's answering false doctrine. Amen. So what we have to do is make sure that when we're living our lives, we look at the things we do, the places we go, and we glorify God in our body. Where our body goes, what our body does, what we feed our body, what we do with our body, it should glorify God in everything. Amen? We're supposed to be vessels unto honor. Meat for the master's use. (laughs) Your life is not for you to use. Your life is for God to use. And I know that sounds strict, and that sounds very uh, fanatical, (laughs) but we got a great God. I mean, he's greater than you think. (laughs) Amen? You're not going to meet anyone and say, hey, dude, how's it going? When you see God, you will fall on your face like dead. And then you're going to look at your life and say, man, I didn't glorify you the way I should. You won't be judging other people, blaming everybody else for your life at that point. You are going to see yourself in such a way that you'll realize it was all your fault. It was all your fault. No man stands before a holy God and will have the ability to blame someone else for their own sinfulness. In fact, in Romans chapter 3, it says that all mouths will be stopped. All those excuses we have today, all your little philosophies, all the reasons why it's okay for me to do this, that, or the other, (laughs) the Bible says he's going to take every excuse out of your mouth. Wow. That means, folks, hey, (laughs) we need to be kind and loving with people. But you don't be going with people that aren't doing right. You go to them, you say, hey, I want you to do right. Stop doing that. Come and follow the Lord and, and love him and give your life to him. But don't go in fellowship with people not doing right. And I'll guarantee you this. You find a Christian that's not doing right, they're going to go out of, your, out of their way to bring you into their circle. Because they do not feel good about leaving you out They want to bring you down to their level. (laughs) They can say, see, majority rules. (laughs) No, ma'am, no, sir. (laughs) Majority doesn't rule. God rules. And if there's only one of us doing right, I mean, he's with the one. (laughs) He'll use them, but he's not going to use the others. So let's be very careful. I think that's a lesson that God wants us to learn here from these vessels. I really do. I think that those vessels are equated to us as believers. And throughout the scripture, you even see in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7, it says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Amen. Talking about the weakness of our body, earthen, made of dust. Amen. He's using the word vessel all the time in relation to the believer, in relation to our life. So let's learn from this. I think it'd be very important for us to do that.